Hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. So I, I'm excited for tonight because this, this, these sermons, this book, these sermons, the Pentecostal blessing, I got this book, I actually found this book about seven months ago. Bethany, is it working online? Can you, cool. Um, so this, this man's name is Joseph Schmel. He was a preacher back in 19, well, his first church he had in about 1902, and then he died in about 19, I think it's like 27. But he's actually a lost gem in church history, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And this book, in the past seven months, has been a huge blessing to me. And it's the Pentecostal blessing, and he's going to deal with some stuff in here. <laughs> That's funny, my, my iPad just asked me if I needed to rehearse for this presentation. I think I'm good, iPad, thank you. Um, it just popped up like big letters on my iPad said, do you need a rehearsal of this presentation? Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, but I'm really excited to do this. I was, so on the Facebook post I made, I said there, there's six sermons that he preached, six sermons leading into the Azusa Street Revival. It's not, I'm, I'm going to do six weeks. I'm not going to do two in, in a week because I don't, I don't think that does it justice. I think this is something we needed, even though he preached these sermons in 1905, they are extremely applicable to today. And so while we are a hundred years plus in the future, everything he says pertains to the American church today. And so we're going to deal with that. And I'm excited to look at this tonight. And you know what? At the end, at the end of service for a little bit, I want us to come up to the altar for a little bit. And I just want us to pray and repent for whatever we need to. Um, because I really feel like if we focus in on these six sermons that Joseph Smell preached that led, led into the Azusa Street Revival with William Seymour Jr., who preached and miraculous miracles happened in California. Um, and we're going to look like how that traveled from the Welsh Revival to California. I think if we really focus in on this concept of the Pentecostal blessing, because we've been talking about the Holy Spirit over and over, if we focus in on this concept of the Pentecostal blessing, I think something's going to happen in this church. I know God wants to do something in this church, but we have to be specific about what we're studying. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into this. Uh, Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place tonight. Um, I know Wednesday night Bible studies is pretty routine. We come in, we pray, we have a lesson, we pray, we leave. But Holy Spirit, if you have a different agenda in mind tonight, I pray you would move on the hearts and minds of everyone in this, in this room tonight, Lord God, that the part of the congregation that is here, that you would work on their hearts and their minds, and we would be open to the flow of the Holy Spirit tonight, the open to the flow of you Holy Spirit, that we would be ready for whatever you tell us to do, that whenever this is over, this isn't much, so much a lesson as in we're dealing with what Joseph Smell preached to the people, that when we get done dealing with this and wrestling with what he says and these concepts of the church, that we would be open to how you want to move after this. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would take this night, that you would open ears and open minds, and the Holy Spirit, you would be the teacher tonight and you would guide us in all truth. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so tonight is pretty much excerpts from his sermons, and we're going to read the, read the excerpts, and we're going to talk about what is he saying, but first we're going to look at some background if my iPad wants to work for me. There you go, buddy. All right, so these are the sermons that prepared the way for the Azusa Street Revival. Now, Joseph Schmel, if you look up on Google, his name is not going to be mentioned. You're not going to find him on Google. He's not in church history. Y'all, I'm a big history nerd, especially when it comes to the church in the past couple hundred years, just seeing how we got to this point. How did we forsake the teachings of the Bible, and how did we get to this point in this day? I'm fascinated with that because I don't want to make those same mistakes. So how did we do that? We learned from history. But when I was looking into the Azusa Street Revival, because I'm so fascinated, y'all, that, that is the only major revival we've had in America in the past hundred years. Major revival that spread across the entire United States and globally. This is the only revival that has actually spread globally in the past 500 years. So it's been 500 years since we into this one and then a hundred now to where we've had a global revival. But this Pentecostal blessing, also called the Holy Ghost as a gift, was a series of six sermons that Joseph Schmel preached after visiting the Welsh revival that took place in 1904 through 1905, where 100,000 Welsh were saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It actually happened to the young man who led the Welsh revival was only 26 years old. And he had been praying since he was called into ministry at the age of 16. For a decade, he prayed since he was 16 years old to the age of 26. Every day he prayed, Lord God, give me a thousand Welsh souls, a thousand Welsh souls. And his name was Evan. I can't remember his last name. 
He's a 26-year-old. Y'all, he wasn't even done getting his full licensing. He was working on getting licensed in the Methodist church. And God used him, a 26-year-old man who'd been praying for a decade, 100,000 Welsh souls. Well, um, Joseph Schmel was Baptist by affiliation. This man was not what we consider Baptist today. But he was so burnt out by the American church and his own church and all the infighting. He had a rather large church, around 500 people. He was so sick and tired of the bickering that he left and he said, God, if you are real, y'all, he's at this point of giving up, giving up ministry completely. He said, God, if you're real, provide a way for me to go to this Welsh revival and show me miracles and show me wonders and show me signs. So he goes over and he's completely mind blown by the things that are happening with the Welsh people. And y'all, you got to understand the Welsh people, they were severe atheists. I mean, these people come from the Vikings. These are not some easy, you know, slowed out people. Christianity was not major in that culture, especially not back then in the 1900s, early 1900s. So he gets set on fire and his, you know, he's rejuvenated and he comes back. Well, he comes back to America and what he was taught over there are the sermons he preached here. And so what we're going to be talking about is because, y'all, my heart is to see revival, first off in this church and in the people of this church, but to see revival in America. I'm talking true revival, not our concepts and ideas and our ideologies, but what Scripture clearly shows what revival is. His first sermon, which we're going to deal with today, I said I was going to do two in one night, but we're going to deal with one tonight, is some misconceptions of the gospel. And while this was preached in 1905, it rings true today. And once again, with our packets, as always, everything that's up on the screen is in that packet for you to take home. Number one, misconception. The popular error that all fundamental characteristics of the gospel for our life in this world are realized at conversion. All right, and like I said, this is his sermon we're dealing with. I'm not taking any credit for any of this. I have everything in parentheses. We're going to read this first excerpt together. Where emphasis is laid upon soul-winning work, conversion is made chiefly the goal of labor. That which follows consists of such things as church membership and joining societies within the church and doing some service either in teaching or occupying a place in the official life and only exceptionally is the convert seeking the salvation of souls. The greatest things to be attended to by a newborn soul are rarely mentioned in the average church. So what is he saying? It's so surface level. Y'all, even in 1905, he's saying the American church is so surface level. He's saying... I. All they're doing is they're seeker friendly. They want you to get saved, but they're not training you past that. You get saved and they keep you at the surface level. And just like majority of churches in America, we want you to get saved. You get saved and then we tell you to go serve somewhere. But we don't teach you any deeper than that. We don't go any deeper than that. So even in 1905, he is dealing with the fact that this is surface level Christianity. He's saying even back then, all you want is souls being saved. But what are you doing with those souls after they're saved? Where's the training? Where's the teaching? But all, you, all you're doing is getting them saved so they help your ministry grow, but you're not doing anything with them. Even in 1905, he's saying you're not doing anything with them. The people's connection with the house of God is becoming largely a matter of mere sentiment, morals, and custom instead of spiritual life. And guys, we know this to be true in the South. You're a good person if you go to church, and that is what rings true in the Bible Belt in America. You go to church because it's the right thing to do. The morals match a good moral life. It's a part of your family. It's a part of your friends. You go to socialize. But where's the spiritual life in the majority of people? And I'm not talking you come to church, you get a little spiritual high and you leave. But the actual spiritual life outside of this building. So he's dealing with the fact that even back then, yo, this is not a new concept. It's just gotten worse and worse over time. But he's saying that the church was in that time becoming this. Y'all, now I'm telling you, it's fully this. Church today is more of a social club than it is the church we see in the Bible. Christ crucified is, it, is the truth, sorry, but little found in the sermons of our day, right? Not many people are preaching Jesus died for your sins because you are a sinner. Christ was crucified for you. Usually it's you're a good person. God wants you how you are. Don't change. It's okay. Just be how you are. But that's not the gospel. Jesus loved you too much to leave you the way you are. He didn't want to leave you trashed out and nasty. He wanted to make you new and clean. And a few churches, comparatively, that love substitutionary work of Christ, which Christ died for our sins, he took our sins, we greatly wish that the whole gospel were preached. 
the serious lack in the ministry of most of the really evangelical churches is that the pulpit has little or nothing to say about the deep truths of the Christian life. And y'all, that is so true. That is so true. If you look at majority of the popular churches, it is the surface level, surface level. And y'all, I'm going to tell you, every year those pastors do the same sermon series and the same sermon series. Every, y'all, it doesn't change. You want to know how I know? Because I was a part of seeker-friendly churches before I realized, wow, that's not the will of God for the Christian people. That's not the will of God for us. So what they do is they give, they give you the same surface-level truth, just in a different way. And pastors don't preach the whole gospel, which isn't just Jesus died for your sins, and I dealt with that in the unseen room. What is the true gospel? How deep does it go? How much is it? And in churches today, we don't preach the deeper truths of the Bible, like being filled with the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit baptism, deeper levels and measures of the Holy Spirit. So while some churches may preach Jesus died for you, they don't go any deeper than that. But what did Paul say? He says, Christians, I'm tired of coming to you, having to give you milk instead of solid food. Where's the maturity? Where is the depth of our Christian life? Y'all, this is pretty long, so I'm going to break it down. But y'all, I'm telling you, this stuff, this is serious, and this is what we need to deal with. And y'all, this isn't stuff I haven't said before. He is dealing with the same things I've been talking about since I took over as a senior pastor. He's dealing with the same things just 100 years ago, which is mind-blowing. Having had set before us the glories of the work of Christ for us and having appropriate appropriated that work by faith, we need a tremendous work of Christ within us, a work unknown in regeneration, all right? There's more to the Christian life than just new birth, right? There's more than just new birth. Once you're saved, there are things that come after that. Listen, salvation is the beginning, not the end of where God wants you to be. Once you're saved, that starts the race. You understand that? The race is not completed. You don't cross the finish line when you're saved. That starts the race once you're saved. You have to continue to run. What is the gospel? And I love this. Tell me not it is a life of struggle, frequent defeat, intermittent peace, occasional joy. Tell me not Jesus Christ wrought in strength on the cross for me, but he can only do so in weakness within me. Tell me not there is no such thing as a permanent, unbroken supremacy of the soul over the world, the flesh, and the devil. If your experience, though a child of God, is one of captivity and servitude to evil, there are thousands rejoicing in liberty and having power over all the power of the enemy. So what, 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 is, what is Joseph Schmel saying? He's saying there's victory in Jesus. He's saying, don't tell me the gospel is that Jesus died so you can keep doing the same sins over and over and over. Joseph Smell's saying, don't tell me the gospel is so you can be depressed and sad and have occasional joy. No, he's saying the gospel is Jesus freed you from your sins so then you can live in joy, you can live in peace, and you have permanent victory over sin. Do you hear that, Christians? Even I, as a young man, 24 years old, Jesus has given me victory over my past sins. And I'm excited to see where I'm going to be 20 years from now. Because if I am experiencing this freedom at the age of 24, because I've truly accepted the, what Jesus did on the cross, his sacrifice for me, I'm excited to see where I'm going to be at 44. Because if I'm experiencing freedom now, I want to know what I'm going to be like 20 years from now. So Judge Ishmael is saying, don't tell me the gospel is this dreary, nasty thing where you never change. He says, no, the gospel is transformative. You can't stay the same when you truly experience Jesus. It's not possible. You can't continue in the same way of life when you truly experience Jesus. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died for your sins, so then you would be transformed into the new way of life. The new creation is here and the old has passed away. And I love how he puts that. He says, tell me not, right? He says, because that's not the gospel. If you're experiencing that, that's because you're not experiencing the true gospel. You're not experiencing the true gospel. I'm going to read this again. If your experience, though, a child of God is one of captivity and servitude to evil, there are thousands rejoicing in liberty and having power over all the power of the enemy. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Say not we have to endure it and make the best of a bad situation. Do you, do you see how he says that? Say not we have to endure it and make the best of a bad situation. No, because Jesus completely changes your situation. The situation does not remain bad. The situation is transformed into a whole different situation. What you were experiencing before you were saved is not the same experiencing, same situation you're experiencing now that you've been saved. It's different. It's a whole flip of the situation. No, no. Deliverance is here 
and now. And I think that's a message more pastors need to preach is deliverance is here and now. Guys, we no longer have to play games with the devil. We no longer have to play hopscotch and all these little kitty games where we fall back into the same sin over and over. Has anyone ever had a sin you just fell into over and over again? I know I did, and it was the most annoying thing in the world because I wanted to be free. But when I got to the point where I realized freedom is an action, it's a state of being. You don't make an act and then you're free. You live in freedom. There's a difference. If you make an act, it's you doing it upon your own free will. But when you choose to live in freedom, it's because you are choosing Christ and the freedom he gives. You cannot free yourself. You can't do it. Coming from someone who struggled with some serious heavy sins before I got saved, I tried to free myself time and time again, and I was stuck. Jesus is the one who brings freedom. And Christians, deliverance is here and it's now. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. A a thorough work in the life of the believer, bringing him now absolutely under the dominion of sin, if possible. And it's taught in the scriptures. What is the glorious word? The God of peace himself sanctify spirit and soul and body be preserved entire without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is not only the grace of justification, but the glory of sanctification. Sometimes we, y'all, Christians get stuck at justification. Jesus died for you, but now what? There's more, Christian. There is more after justification. Yes, you are justified and the righteousness of Christ has now been imputed to you, but now sanctification awaits before you. But you have to allow the Holy Spirit to work. You have to strive for sanctification. So while the grace from God is justification, now our glory is sanctification. Not only the blessing of the new birth, but the riches of the Spirit-filled life. Do we see that? Do we see that? Not only the blessing of new birth, you are now made new, but now there's riches of glory in the Spirit-filled life. The Spirit-filled life, you don't have to struggle with sin anymore. You bear fruits, you have good things in your life, and you have gifts to use. And he gives and gives and gives, but we first have to understand what the Spirit-filled life is. These double experiences are are indeed for us while we are in this evil world. Y'all, the reason, listen, the reason majority of Christians fall into sin over and over again, because they don't understand just how good the gospel is. They don't understand just how much it lies within the word of God for us. That a lot, majority of Christians never get past the book of Matthew. They read the book of Matthew, they see Jesus died for our sins, but they don't see everything that came after that. And they get stuck at justification, but they never see the great riches. And listen, that is why he says these double experiences. What's the double experience? New birth, but then spirit-filled life. So not only are we made new, but then we're empowered to remain in the new life. We're empowered to live in that new way, to experience true joy and true peace. In the gospel, we have a religion which supplies solid comfort when man dies. Do we understand the number one fear from all of time, from the beginning of time to the end of time, is death? Why? Because it's terrifying. Why? Because we don't truly, well, we know, if we're Christians, we know, but still, that's a completely different experience from anything we could ever even imagine in our minds. It doesn't make sense to us. We can't comprehend it. There's no rational thought process that helps you understand death. It's transcendent. And so the number one thing that man has always struggled with, has always been fearful of, is death. But in the gospel, we have a religion which supplies solid comfort when man dies. And a religion that will give sweetest pleasures while man lives. But if we live in the gospel, if we understand the gospel. Misconception number two. The gospel is mainly beliefs for the head and no experiences for the heart. Now, this is a major insurgence today as well. Is you have to understand the Bible. You have to understand the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but you understand it here. And you understand the concepts here. And you learn and you learn and you gather knowledge and gather knowledge. And the Baptist church is a main one pushing this. Is that, you know, we are called to worship in spirit and in truth. But to them is you worship in truth. And yes, the word of God is the authority. We listen to the word of God, right? It's our authority to live our lives. But it's not just experiences for the head. It's experiences for the heart. The gospel is revealed truth. And such as the natural man cannot receive... Yet many a natural man thinks he can receive it and thinks he has received it. So what is he saying? Just like Jesus said in the Gospels, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name and I did that in your name. 
But he will answer them and say, go away from me, for I never knew you. Because if you know him here and you don't know him here, that's not relationship. I know my friends here. I know y'all here. I know my wife here. I know things about y'all, but I know y'all here. So if you know all the facts of the Bible, that's not getting you into heaven. It's a relationship that is getting you into heaven. His knowledge of the gospel, now he's talking about people, right, living in the flesh, but saying they have knowledge in their minds of Christ. His knowledge of the gospel in reality is only the knowledge of the facts of Christian history. Of the profound truths associated with those facts, he is a stranger. His religion is no matter of the heart. To him, consecration, sanctification, separation from the world, a life of piety, worldwide missionary sympathies, and the hallelujah gladness of the saint of God are not the essentials of religion, but the spirit fanaticism. And y'all, I'm telling you, if those of us who are in here, Pentecostals, right, the world usually sees us as fanatics. Coming up to worship, to raise your hands, to know before the Lord, they consider that fanatics, right? Sanctification is considered fanatics. Separation from the world and being away from the world and not taking part, that's considered being a fanatic, right? Oh, you're taking it too far. Y'all know how many times in my life as a young man I've been told I'm taking my, my walk with Christ too far. I refuse to go to certain places with certain people. Oh, that's not what the Bible meant. You're taking it too far. You're, you're too serious about this whole thing. No, y'all. This, Christianity, what we say believe, that's number one. Everything else is just an option. So if we don't can fully conform our lives, then yeah, the rest of the world is going to think we're fanatics. Yet scripture says the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The natural man never rises to either one of these, which is true, which is true. Because why? If you don't know Christ in your heart, you have no peace in your heart. There's no peace when you don't truly know Christ. So when scripture says the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, the natural man never rises to either one of these. And it's true. That's why you see so many unhappy Christians. I'm just being honest. If you put your hope in anything other than Christ, you're going to be a very unhappy person. You're going to be, happy, you're going to be unhappy with politics. You're going to be unhappy with the school systems. You're going to be unhappy with the medical systems. Why? Because your peace does not, rely, does not lay in Christ. It lays in the world. And so those who, who seek Christ from a natural man's perspective will neither rise to any of these. One third part of religion, according to the Bible, is emotion. It is joy, the pure, delightful joy of a renewed heart. And y'all, I know that to be true. Because before Christ, I had severe anger issues. You can ask my parents. I had severe anger issues. I would lash out on everyone for literally no reason. And when I saved by Jesus Christ, right, the joy, the pure, delightful joy of a renewed heart, a new heart. The old has passed away. The new is here. One third is undisturbed serenity. It is peace, which is a neighbor to joy. But of this, he, speaking of the natural man, knows nothing. The calm in which he may boast is a false peace, for the ground of true peace is the shed blood of Christ. Amen. One third is purest character. It is the beautiful righteousness of the gospel, a beggarly thing when he describes it. In his mind, so speaking of the, the natural man, in his mind it is no more than the moralist life of right doing, from which Paul shrank so much, that which he hoped he might not be found in it at the judgment day. What are they talking of? Paul did not want to be seen as a moral person. He just wanted the righteousness of Christ. Because he knew when the judgment day came, no man can stand before the Lord. No man on his own can stand before the Lord. It is only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ can we stand before the Lord. Gospel righteousness is an immaculate thing. Our righteousness by the side of it is filthy rags. Hence the apostles cry, that I may be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Amen, which is by faith. From all this, we cannot escape the conclusion that while religion is a system of beliefs, the articles of our faith result in experiences that affect the very center of our being. Our affectional nature, not only producing an ethical change, but of necessity firing the entire life with the pure emotion of delight in God. The subjects of grace find that grace to be glory and such glory that the heart bursts with praises to God. Y'all, I worry about people who don't praise God openly. I worry. I do. Because if, if you claim to be a believer, 
and your heart is so hardened that you can't show any emotion, I worry. I genuinely worry. And listen, the whole reason I'm even dealing with the Pentecostal blessing is because I want to see more Christians filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to see more Christians with exuberant praise. I want to see more Christians outgoing and happy and full of joy. But really in the church today, I, I, I worry about people who can stand during praise and worship like this. I worry. I do. Because where, where's the joy of the Lord in your heart? Where's the exuberant praise? The, the heart bursts with praises to God. Where is that? Now those who have the Holy Spirit in them, that is, that is an automatically an instinctual response to glories to God. It is impossible to accompany Christ from the throne to the manger and from Bethlehem to Gethsemane and from the garden to Golgotha and from Olivet to the seventh heaven and to fill the mystery of his indwelling the believer without the strong emotion of gratitude and love. Amen? It is impossible to follow the journey of Jesus Christ through the Gospels to know everything he did for you and not be drawn to tears. Not to be brokenhearted over your sin, that your sin is what caused him to go there. Yes, he chose it, but our sin is what caused it. So if you're not brought to gratitude and love, then there's a problem. Divine praises will well up within and brook no effort of repression. And the house of God will be of all places the seemliest for their expression. Unnatural, listen, unnatural is that sanctuary service and those conditions that the that conception of religion which preclude a child of God glorifying in his Redeemer. What is he saying? It's unnatural for a house of God to have people who are not openly praising, clearly praising God. It's unnatural. Why? Because you're praising him here with your mind by sitting and listening, but you're not praising him in your heart. All of us are emotional about something. All of us get very excited about something. For a lot of you, that's the Gamecocks. And I'm sorry because you don't get to be excited often. But some of you take, take joy in specific things. I'm just being honest. We take joy in specific things. And for Christians, y'all, because I, I see some people on the weekends, and y'all get very excited about activities outside the church. But once we get inside the church, you're like a stone-cold wall. That's a problem. That means the Holy Spirit, you have not allowed the Holy Spirit to do more of a work on your heart. To frown upon emotional religion is clearly not to have the spirit of Christ, but the spirit of the Pharisees. Mm, I'll read that again. To frown upon emotional religion is clearly not to have the spirit of Christ, but the spirit of the Pharisees. And I hope y'all are underlining this. I hope, I hope y'all are reading through with me, right? Because this is so rich, and this has blessed me so much just looking through this. And y'all, this is just building the foundation. The stuff we're going to get into in week four and five and six it's going to blow your mind. It really will because it has blown mind. This is just dealing with the groundwork we have to do before we can get to the next level. Misconception number three. The gospel can be realized without spirituality. The worldly religious are the hardest people to reach. Amen to that. They believe in the church, support it, are ready to assent to its theological propositions, and they subscribe to the accepted cardinal doctrines of Christianity. But withal, there dwells within them an idolatrous heart. Their devotion is not devotion to God, but to forms and ceremonies connected with his name. And when through with these, with the zest of any non-professor, will yield themselves to the service of Satan, well, self and Satan. Consequently, these souls are lost when they have not the remotest suspicion of any such desperate personal condition. And guys, I'm just going to tell you now, in America, this is, this is the majority. It's, it's the majority. And y'all can say I'm hard, you can say Josiah, you're mean. But I mean, is it not true? And it's true, the worldly religious are the hardest people to reach. Those who have one foot in the church and one foot out the church. Like Herod, who did many things and heard John gladly, they nevertheless failed to do the thing, thing one thing absolutely needful. And you know, I'm not going to lie, it's kind of refreshing to read his sermons, because have I not been saying these same things? So I'm glad, no, I'm not the, not the only person in history to say these things. All they're doing in the house of God is profitless, and worse, a snare destroying the possibility of the knowledge of the redemptive work of Christ. Read that again. All they're doing in the house of God is profitless and worse, a snare, destroying the possibility of the knowledge of the redemptive work of Christ. Why? Because they think they already understand it. They think they already know it. 
but their lives have not been changed. So what are they doing? It's a snare. It keeps them entrapped in this lifestyle. And it destroys the possibility of the knowledge of the redemptive work of Christ. Why? Because they think the redemptive work has already happened. They think it already happened. They think they're good. They think they're smooth and good to go. But it's not so. For it is written, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did we see that? For it is written, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Scripture, you know, sweeps clean from the soul the false notion of knowing the love of God, if in the heart be found the love of the world. The truth of the gospel is after godliness according to the first verse of Titus 1 and according to Titus 2, 11 through 12. The grace of God that bringeth salvation is a grace teaching the denial of ungodliness and worldly lust and enjoining the life of sobriety, righteous, and godliness. To mix religion and the world is sacrilegious. Christians, we can't do it. We, we can't do it. And y'all, even sometimes that, that is something as simple as spending more time on the television than you do with God. And I, I don't think we understand how easy it is to love the things of the world, right? Because we're still flesh. We still live in this world, and I'm guilty of this. I'm not, I'm not over here floating, you know, because I'm so holy. I'm guilty of this as well. And there are things weekly I realize that I need to give up more so I can spend more time with God, you know, because it takes my attention away. But it's true that worldly believers, it's so hard to minister to them because they think they already understand. They think they got it. They think they understand fully what the redemptive work of Christ is, but they don't understand it's a fully transformative work. It's not habit change. It's not you get saved so your anger problems go away, but you still remain the same person. Transformation is completely changing who you are as a person. That's why scripture again and again and again says from the old life to the new life. The old has passed away and the new life is here. The notion that the gospel, this is the fourth misconception, the notion that the gospel requires supplemental methods for its prosperity at home and abroad. Very insidiously has this notion worked in the church of God. And y'all, I'm not going to lie, me and Pastor Charlie have had many conversations about this, that we are not here to do any programs or any methods. We just want to do what the Bible says. And listen, I've, I've been a part of a church planning organization where literally, guys, I'm not joking, they have everything mapped out for you. Everything. I'm talking from the greeters ministry and how you are to have many people you are to have, the signs you are meant to have, to how you have people welcomed in the building. Everything is built down to a T. Why? Because it's a man-made method to get people, to grow a church. But God's not in it. How, Pastor Josiah, how do you know God's not in it? Because I was a part of it. I was a part of it. Fully man-made. Y'all, we even called our services productions. We called them productions. How sad is that? So we, we've gotten so caught up, especially in the year now. I mean, back then, I, c- I couldn't imagine. But now, I definitely see this. The notion that the gospel requires supplemental methods for its prosperity at home and abroad. What does that mean? It means we have taken the gospel and said, you're not good enough. We've taken the gospel and said, Jesus, you dying wasn't good enough. We got to do event after event or thing after thing just to get people in the door. We got to make it more attractive. We got to make it more fun. Our services have to be more exciting. The speaking has to be better. The music has to be louder. And instead of saying, Jesus, you are enough, the gospel is enough to save the soul, we have supplemented man-made methods to assist the gospel. Very insidiously has this notion worked in the church of God. Did not we all find it prevailing when we were brought into connection with the church? And not being enlightened from the word and by our teachers, we accepted the system of work and vogue, which means what was popular, without a question. And formed easily the habit of doing things according to custom. Y'all remember when I preached that message about holiness and how I talked about traditionalism is not holiness? We took for granted that the traditional was the true way. How often we have said it over and over again to ourselves and to one another. Do not our denominational leaders think so? They ought to know. They are men of piety and wisdom. So we contented ourselves in thinking that all was well. But in this compliance with tradition, we have unwittingly yielded to man the headship of the church which belongs to Christ alone. And I know that to be a fact. Because the majority of churches are not led by the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't care who puts me on record saying that. I say that wholeheartedly. The majority of churches are not led by the Holy Spirit. They're man 
led. You want to know how I know? The majority of pastors go to seminar after seminar after seminar. Yes, is it helpful to have people guide us and teach us? Yes. But when we are so reliant on man-made methods of leadership that we don't allow the Holy Spirit to have rule and reign in our church, we are missing the whole point. You then become the head of the church, not Christ. We venture to assert that if churches had not become apostate and worldly, there would never have been societies and mission boards. We find not so much as a hint of these things in the New Testament days. And that's a fact. You will not read the New Testament and see any of the methods and programs we have today. And you can say, listen, the plea cannot be uh, responsibly entered that the church of those days was not fully developed. and That methods were left for after generations to formulate. Do we see that? I hear it time and time again. Well, Josiah, we, we just live in a different day and age. But we use that as an excuse all the time to, one, live however we want to, but to, two, change the church into whatever we want it to be. Yes, we are in the year 2021, and this is 2,000 years past the New Testament church. But what, is the, what does it say? What does the word say? It's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. It hasn't changed. We have. We have taken that concept of times changing, and we've changed the word of God. The plea cannot be reasonably made, entered that the church of those days was not fully developed and that methods were left for after generations to formulate. The church being peculiarly the Lord's own organization, he has a care. Not only touching the things to be believed, obviously his word, but touching the way of his people's service, the way we function in the church, the way we do church. We contend that whatever is essential to the spread and growth of the gospel both in doctrine and in method, was made known by the great head of the church through his apostles. I agree with this 100%. I'll read it again. We contend that whatever is essential to the spread and growth of the gospel, so whatever we read in the New Testament, right, whatever we read in the New Testament, in doctrine and in method, right, we don't change doctrine, we don't even change the method, was made known by the great head, Jesus, of the church through his disciples, a.k.a. His apostles, right, those who led the church. I agree with that. I cannot agree more with that statement. That everything we need to be a healthy church is in the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's already there. Why do y'all think, why do y'all think we're doing the evangelism team? Jesus sent out his disciples. I'm sending out my disciples. We're training you and we're sending you out. Why? Because that's from the Bible. Let us be careful about being what sorry, I should say being more wise than the word in anything. Y'all hear that? Let us be careful about being more wise than the word in anything. The word of God is the authority. I don't care how great your idea, your method is. If it's outside of scripture, don't do it. You're not smarter than Jesus. I'm sorry to tell you. You're not smarter than Jesus. Summary. We must repent and get back to the Bible and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead his church. that, that, That whole first sermon... And if you, want, if, you, if you literally want to get the book, it's called the Azusa Street Series, The Pentecostal Blessing, Joseph Schmale. If you would like to get his sermons, it's as simple as that. I think they're $10 on Amazon. But the summary, the whole summary of that first sermon, which was what I've been saying since I started here, we must repent and get back to the Bible and allowing the Holy Spirit to lead his church. Why? Because it's his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's no one's church. It's his church. And if it's, any, then if, if it's anyone else has taken the headship, the lordship of it, then it's not a church. It's a social club with good morals and fun parties. In essence, Joseph Schmel is saying that we have it wrong. And if the gospel is misunderstood, then everything's misunderstood. There is so much more to the gospel than just, y'all, sorry, my computer was freaking out. The surface level of being saved. We as the church have to get back to the Bible and allow the Holy Spirit to lead his church. And listen, that, that's the end of his sermon. Y'all realize, I didn't, I didn't do this sermon. This is not my sermon. This is Joseph Schmel's sermon from 1905. But now what I want us to do, I want us to come around the altar for a little bit. I want us to get right. Because y'all, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, because the stuff he experienced at Azusa Street after preaching this, after the people bought into it and fully cleansed their lives, fully sought the gift of the Holy Spirit, y'all, thousands and thousands of people were saved globally. Y'all, California of all states was radically changed. So I'm, I'm going to play music on my iPad. It's obviously not going to be crazy loud, but we're just going to be up around this altar. This is my favorite song. It's called Real Thing by Maverick City. And the whole point of the song is, God, take away everything else. I just want you. 
So if you feel comfortable coming to the altar, but I would really say come up here, y'all, because the Lord's doing something in this church. But we first have to be ready. Y'all can come up whenever y'all are ready. Online, worship with us. We're, just, we're praying. We're seeking the Lord.